Get ready, listeners. HPPodcraft.com For one who has never faced the danger of a legal execution, I have a rather queer horror of the electric chair as a subject. Indeed, I think the topic gives me more of a shudder than it gives many a man who has been on trial for his life. The reason is that I associate the thing with an incident of 40 years ago. A very strange incident which brought me close to the edge of the unknown's black abyss. That was the first paragraph of The Electric Executioner, a short story by Adolf de Castro and revised by weird fiction author H.P. Lovecraft. And no surprise that we're talking about H.P. Lovecraft on this program, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at hppodcraft.com, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And uh, we're your co-hosts on this journey. Yes, and I have to tell you, Chad, I am excited about today's episode. You are? Yes. What are you so excited about? Because I think we've actually found Lovecraft's worst story. <laughs> you hate this one. I, I hate this story. I'm just wow. going to try and be as objective as possible when talking about it, but I have to tell you a real deep-seated dislike of this, this story. Yeah, see, I didn't like it at all either, but I got to say, our last DeCastro revision, the last test, I, I hate it even more. I, yeah, I know, I know. I, and, and see, I found a bit of, of joy in it, mm-hmm. as one would find joy in the motion picture The Room. Right. <laughs> it's just bad. So bad so bad that it's good. I get you. Well, this one was shorter than that, which is maybe why I liked it yeah, a little it better because it didn't eat up as much of my day. But also a lot more confusing. It, yeah, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Our reader today is Stephen Brewster. Oh, yeah. Good old Stephen. Glad to have him back. You guys might remember him from the horror at Red Hook. So, you know, we, at some point we got to get him on a good story. But, uh, <laughs> but I love the way he reads this stuff. You know, yeah. he, can make, he can make something a little better. Um, Absolutely. He's a fantastic actor. And before we get into that, I wanted to sure. uh, mention Chad uh, on our program. Do a little a little promotion for, for you and I. Uh, we have okay. an article published in Bazaar Magazine, the February 15th issue. Well, that's coming up in a few days. Yeah, and it's about good old H.P. Lovecraft. You mean the whole issue is? Or? No, well, no, no. I mean, there's going to be kind of a section, different, different articles and things about H.P. Lovecraft, and just kind of how he's sort of on this upward momentum where there seems to be a lot more people being interested in his work especially mm-hmm. with the movie coming out and that, that whole thing so right bizarre magazine asked us to uh, write a little article about hp and yeah little intro to the whole section right? exactly that's what i recall writing anyway so yeah <laughs> look for that uh, on newsstands february 15th in the uk and a little bit in the u.s i think there'll be some issues over here too absolutely while we're on the uh, topic of self-promotion Chris, I actually wanted to announce that the soundtrack, Volume 2, of music from the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is now available. Oh, right. It's about time. That's right. Jeez. Yeah, you can have it now. Yeah. So if you make a donation of $10 or more, we will send that to you. And if you don't have the first volume, actually, if you make a donation of $15 or more, we'll send you both. So you can have the music from the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, Volume 1. Uh, and you can also have volume two. That's a lot of music. That, that is a lot of music. Are you now? Are you talking mailing them as CDs, or is this just digital download? It's just digital download. You make the donation, and boom, you're going to get it. Wait, will that include CD art as well? That will include original CD art by uh, one Christopher Lackey. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. So you get the you get the whole package. So the last one we did only covered music that went up to like episode 17. So this is from 18 to 65. This is a lot more. Oh my God. Stuff that we've used over the last year. Yeah. That is a lot. It's going to be good. What's happening with Picture in the House? Actually, we just went into the studio to record those readings, so I've got them. We're editing and mixing down, and those are going to be delivered, already paid for, ready to go this month. 
Yeah, woo! Yeah. All right, great. So before February's out, you're going to have those in your hot little hand. I've, I've, I've got um, two stereo systems all ready to go. I've got to find a third. Yeah, you mean when you do the 3D experience? Well, right, yeah, when I do the 3D yeah. experience. See, I've got, my, well, my iPod, I've got external speakers I can plug into my iPod, so that's one. Mm -hmm. And then I have my stereo system, which is two. Yeah, and then, now then you can use your laptop or a computer or something like that. Oh, a laptop. Three. Yeah, that yeah. might be good. Or have some friends over. Well, yeah, but then they have to bring over some kind of a stereo with them. Oh, they just bring their, uh, you know, bring their iPod. Oh, all right, great. Bring their laptop. Oh, done, done. You don't, ha you don't have any friends, do you? No. On to the crappy story. Yeah, <laughs> we could sum this up pretty fast. Basically, it's uh, it's eighteen eighty nine, and our narrator of the story, the electric executioner, who we heard in the first paragraph talk about his horror of uh, what a stupid opening paragraph, by the way. Yeah, it's terrible. Who who isn't afraid of the electric chair? <laughs> but he's especially afraid of the electric chair. <laughs> what a to say that, you know, he thinks he, you know, I would say I'm probably more afraid than people who are about to be electrocuted in an electric chair. No, you're not. That's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous thing to say. Well, anyway, it's 1889. This ridiculous man is the auditor and uh, chief investigator for a San Francisco mining company. Mm -hmm. Again, I was disappointed. We have a California setting that gets completely wasted on a crappy story. Yeah. Anyway, he's going to get married in a week. Mm -hmm. But a guy named Arthur Feldon, who's a mining foreman for the company. No, no, he's Mexico, an assistant. Oh, he's an assistant. Assistant to the superintendent. Oh, okay. Assistant to the superintendent. <laughs> yeah, assistant superintendent. Assistant to the superintendent. Arthur yeah, well, Feldon. so what did he do? Well, he basically kind of went nuts and ran off with some stock records, securities, and private papers, and wow. a lot of important information from mining num mine number three, because it's a, a copper and silver mine down mm -hmm. in the San Mateo Mountains in Mexico. You know, everything's screwed up because he has all this important information, so the president goes, you need to go down there and find this. Yeah, company. and it wasn't a surprise that he took off with the stuff. I mean... Feldon was furtive and he was sort of unliked by the people he worked with. They didn't know what he was up to. He, a strange detail. He's always working up in the lab late at night, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's another, this is the first thing that was confusing to me. He is a, a assistant to the superintendent and he's working in a lab? Yeah, of course. What, what? Huh? I, I don't know. It makes no sense. <laughs> it I felt sense. like... I felt like this was DeCastro's story, and it was going along fine, and then Lovecraft just penned that little line in on the margins or something. Oh, by the way, he works in the lab. You know, I mean, it was just so stupid. It, it did, yeah, it seemed really bizarre. As you say, our main character has to go down, and he has to get him, even though he's getting married in the next week. Now, I, I couldn't get much info about this story, really, when I was kind of looking around online. but I found Daniel, some. Yeah, I found some. Daniel Harms had left some notes about it on hplovecraft.com, and one of the things he had... The DeCastro story, I think, had actually been published before it had in something called black forbidden things in the confessional and the following in 18 oh right but that was yeah yeah 1893 uh -huh. so it's a really old story that yeah. he's rewriting anyway but in in his original version he had the narrator running down to do this uh manhunt the night before his wedding instead yeah. of the weekend before the week before which is like what i mean he's getting married i don't care if this is his job or not but don't, don't you think that's crazy you can't travel that back in 18 you can get down to mexico and back in a in a night? Well, obviously, he's just like, honey, I got to put this off because I'm on a man. I don't know. It just, what is this supposed to do for us? The fact that he's getting married. That I, I just like him a, or something. Or, or just put a, a sense of him like time is of the essence, I guess. Yeah. You know, for well. it's personal, trying to make him personal, but failing to do so. You know, actually, Lovecraft, one thing I did think about this that was interesting is um, part of the characterization of the madman came from when H.P. Lovecraft had to ride a train from New York to Washington and there was a crazy man on there. Oh, really? Yeah, he was like a German dude who kept repeating, uh, and here I quote you, everything is luftly, I was shoot 
leading my light shine, which is something the Madman says later. He goes, he says, I will, yeah. I shall let my light shine. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So he got that from this personal thing when he ran into a crazy guy. The guy was harmless. I, that's the one thing about the story that I find interesting is the scenario where you're kind of alone in a subway car or in a train car with somebody who's crazy. I mean, uh -huh. I've experienced that before. Just riding the subway in Chicago. Sure. I mean, it's... <laughs> riding the bus in L.A., of course. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I've ridden lots of buses in L.A. There's some interesting stuff that happens at night on there. You got to see some interesting solo sex acts. <laughs> if, you're, if you're lucky. <laughs> The guy's got to go down to Mexico to find the fugitive, and uh, the president of the company allows him to use his private train car for the trip down to Mexico City, but it breaks down, and there are all these delays, and our narrator's getting really late, and he's like, ah, Felden, he's, get, he's getting this lead on me, you know? Never going to be able to catch him. Yeah. So he's finally forced to take another train the rest of the way to Mexico City. It's this European-style train, right? Which means that the folks in the cars have to face each other. Yes. And when our guy boards the train in the middle of the night, he thinks he's all alone, and so he's, he's looking forward to catch a little shut-eye, but he's not alone. Then suddenly I perceived that I was not alone after all. In the corner diagonally opposite me, slumped down so that his face was invisible, sat a roughly clad man of unusual size, whom the feeble light had failed to reveal before. Beside him on the seat was a huge valise, battered and bulging, and tightly gripped even in his sleep by one of his incongruously slender hands. As the engine whistled sharply at some curve or crossing, the sleeper started nervously into a kind of watchful half-awakening, raising his head and disclosing a handsome face, bearded and clearly Anglo-Saxon, with dark, lustrous eyes. At sight of me, his wakefulness became complete, and I wondered at the rather hostile wildness of his glance. No doubt, I thought, he resented my presence when he had hoped to have the compartment alone all the way, just as I was myself disappointed to find strange company in the half-lighted carriage. The best we could do, however, was to accept the situation gracefully, so I began apologizing to the man for my intrusion. To my surprise, the stranger did not respond to my courtesies with so much as a word. Instead, he kept staring at me fiercely and almost appraisingly, and brushed aside my embarrassed proffer of a cigar with a nervous lateral movement of his disengaged hand. His other hand still tensely clutched the great worn valise, and his whole person seemed to radiate some obscure malignity. After a time, he abruptly turned his face toward the window, though there was nothing to see in the dense blackness outside. Oddly, he appeared to be looking at something as intently as if there really were something to look at. I decided to leave him to his own curious devices and meditations without further annoyance, so settled back in my seat, drew the brim of my soft hat over my face, and closed my eyes in an effort to snatch the sleep I had half counted on. Oh my gosh, so there's like a crazed hand model. Right? <laughs> that would have been the best title for this. <laughs> the crazed hand model. Slender hands. Don't say that Lovecraft didn't write lots of interesting characters. <laughs> I would never say that. The only uh, piece of literature in which the antagonist is a crazed hand model. He's not alone in this, uh, this car. He thought he was. Yeah. Fell asleep, woke up. There's a guy sitting over there being creepy. And I was pretty bored until we got to this point. Yeah. Now, I, I didn't know what was, you know, coming, but the, at this point I was interested. And I, I especially like how the narrator, he tries to catch a shut eye, but then some kind of feeling of evil or something kind of wakes him up. He sees the guy across from him, but he's kind of got his eye half closed and he's just trying to, you know, secretly keep his eye on him. As the train rattled onward through the night, I saw a subtle and gradual metamorphosis come over the expression of the staring man. Evidently satisfied that I was asleep, 
He allowed his face to reflect a curious jumble of emotions, the nature of which seemed anything but reassuring. Hatred, fear, triumph, and fanaticism flickered compositely over the lines of his lips and the angles of his eyes, while his gaze became a glare of really alarming greed and ferocity. Suddenly, it dawned upon me that this man was mad, and dangerously so. I will not pretend that I was anything but deeply and thoroughly frightened when I saw how things stood. Perspiration started out all over me, and I had hard work to maintain my attitude of relaxation and slumber. Life had many attractions for me just then, and the thought of dealing with a homicidal maniac, possibly armed and certainly powerful to a marvelous degree, was dismaying and terrifying. My disadvantage in any sort of struggle was enormous, for the man was a virtual giant, evidently in the best of athletic trim, while I have always been rather frail and was then almost worn out with anxiety, sleeplessness, and nervous tension. It was undeniably a bad moment for me, and I felt pretty close to a horrible death as I recognized the fury of the madness in the stranger's eyes. I I felt pretty close to a horrible death. It sounds like the beaver wrote that sentence or something, you know? Gee, Wally, we're pretty close to a horrible death. I don't know, but it was a cool scene right there. You know? Yeah, it and was... I actually, there's a line earlier than that when he says, um, life had many attractions for me just then. Yeah. For whatever reason, I actually thought that was a really cool line because it, it, tell, it gives you a bit of information yeah. that he was young and happy and looking forward to his wedding. He really didn't want to get killed. But yeah. it, it suggests that perhaps later in life, things aren't going so well for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or it just suggests that. Even I would say, you know, at that moment, life had many attractions for him. You know, like he's just saying mm -hmm. he's sort of taking things for granted. He's probably focused on his job, having to deal with all this stuff. And then once he realizes he's in danger, he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> My life's yeah. pretty great right now. I don't want to die. Right, right. It's a good sentence. I, I underlined it when I was writing. I thought, well, maybe this won't be so bad. <laughs> oh, thank you again. And this, is, of course, pops up here. He mentions that he has a revolver in his pocket, our protagonist. Right. Well, he knows that he's so frail and weak. He's got to pack heat if he wants to even stand a chance in his investigating. And <laughs> he knows that that uh, revolver's in his pocket, so he does that thing where he gradually tries to move his hand over to get it. He knows that if this guy's crazy, just pulling out a gun is not going to cow him. You know, he's not going to be afraid of a, right. of a gun or death. And he'll, of course, have the superhuman strength of a madman <laughs> the superhuman strength of a madman which he does and that's when the story gets really ridiculous because as the guy kind of moves his hand toward the revolver uh the guy sees it with a bound so agile and abrupt as to be almost incredible a man of his size he was upon me before i knew what had happened looming up and swaying forward like a giant ogre of legend and pinioning me with one powerful hand while with the other he forestalled me in reaching the revolver taking it from my pocket and placing it in his own he released me contemptuously, well knowing how fully his physique placed me at his mercy. Then he stood up at his full height, his head almost touching the roof of the carriage, and stared down at me with eyes whose fury had quickly turned to a look of pitying scorn and ghoulish calculation. I did not move, and after a moment the man resumed his seat opposite me, smiling a ghastly smile as he opened his great bulging valise and extracted an article of peculiar appearance a rather large cage of semi-flexible wire woven somewhat like a baseball catcher's mask, but shaped more like the helmet of a diving suit. Its top was connected with a cord whose other end remained in the valise. This device he fondled with obvious affection, cradling it in his lap as he looked at me afresh and licked his bearded lips with an almost feline motion of the tongue. Uh-oh. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> at first, I thought maybe it was the comeback of the dream machine from Beyond the Wall of Sleep. You know, yeah, you pull that, like, uh-huh, that upside uh-huh. down colander, but yep. its own head cage. This is really bizarre what just happens here. So the guy's going to reach for his gun. The bearded man sees him reaching for his gun and then attacks him, pulls a gun out of his hand, looks at him disapprovingly, goes over his valise and pulls out this thing. It's just so yeah, weird. Yeah, this thing that looks like a catcher's mask that it's got a cord going out of it back into the bag. Right. it's just so bizarre it it doesn't make any sense and i'm not it's one of those things where sometimes things happen in lovecraft stories or any Uh, other fiction where you're going this is bizarre i want to know more but this is happening it's bizarre and i'm confused i don't understand why are these things happening i don't even know if i was as confused as i was just like uh okay now we're gonna watch this happen whenever it is well the dude kind of tries to explain uh what's going on the the big guy says hey this is my invention an electric executioner, and I'm going to test it on you. You got to be the first, so it's a big honor for you. And he's got a funny line where he says, I've tested it on cats and burrows. He says, it even worked with a burrow. You know? (laughs) (laughs) That line is so bad. Um, And the guy's got some kind of Aztec religious mania, too. Yeah, he just starts throwing out all these gods coming back. Quetzalcoatl is going to come back and take over the world and kill everybody. And so he wants to make this machine that's going to kill people more proficiently for some reason. Yeah, he's exactly. It's it's sort of like the Dunwich Horror when uh, Wilbur's saying, you know, the world's going to be cleared off when the old ones come back. Yeah. People will all be removed. And it's kind of the same notion. Quetzalcoatl's going to come back and all of the people need to be taken away. So he tried to invent a little machine that's efficiently will kill people, I guess. It's so ridiculous. But the funny thing is, is it's also tied up with he's complaining that nobody in Albany would adopt his device. You know, when they were com- they came up with their electric chair and he says, this is much more efficient. You just put it on somebody's head and you electrocute them. Yeah. So he's mad at the people in Albany. Okay, which makes me really confused because he is a superintendent, uh, an assistant to the superintendent at a <laughs> mine in Mexico. Like, how the hell is he getting to Mex- uh, getting to, to New York? I don't, I don't know. Because he's an assistant to the superintendent. Usually when you're an assistant, you don't get to, like, take weeks off at a time. You're pretty much, you have to work really hard. Well, maybe the timeline is that he was in New York trying to get them to approve this device. And he just had illustrations of it in sort of blueprints. Yeah. And they said, no, we're going with the chair. He's ah, you fools. And so he leaves the country uh-huh. and gets a job on the mine just because he needs the money in his pocket. And tinkers in the lab to actually build the thing. Right. Now he's got it, and he needs to test it on somebody. Right. Okay. Okay. No, that's, no. That's you've my sold, theory. You've sold me on it. However, that should have been in the story. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Some kind of explanation of that. Yeah. He. It's. There's great dialogue, too, when the man's telling our protagonist about his device, and he keeps saying, you know, I need subjects to test this device on. Do you know whom I've chosen first? Like he's telling a ghost story. Right. Well, yeah, yeah I'm the only guy in here. You took my gun. I have a pretty good idea. You know, it's <laughs> it's not scaring me as a reader. But our narrator's he's pretty slick, and he says, you know what I'm going to do? This guy's obviously crazy because he's got this Aztec religious mania. So I'm going to go ahead and chat him up, yeah. and that'll delay him until dawn when right. we get to Mexico City, and the authorities can come help us out. So says that that's a really cool head cage you got there. You know, what's the story behind that? And that's when our guy kind of tells him the stuff about Albany and the, uh-huh. how it's better than an electric chair and, and how he wants to test it on Americans because, you know, Mexicans are too close to the gods. Or... And he says, well, well, you know what? I know a bunch of Americans, a bunch of Yankees down in Mexico City that would be great specimens. You know, I'll, I'll get you set up with them. Yeah. And the guy goes, no, 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 you're not fooling me. I'm going to test right. it on you. He's got different tactics. This is, a, this is the whole rest of the story is just him trying out different tactics. Mm-hmm. Install. He says, well, I have a family and I'm about to get married. 
and I'd like to will them all stuff and write the guy says oh okay and he digs a pad of paper out and he gives him a pencil he's like hurry up about it before I put this cage on your head you can he breaks the lead on the pencil intentionally and then the guy pulls out another pencil and gives it to him and then sharpens it pulls <laughs> right. out a big knife and then sharpens up the pencil again just to be ready for it it turns into this comedy scene you know and then the, oh, the guy God. says well wait a minute you know what I know before you kill me I also know a bunch of politicians in California and you should at least let me write an introduction letter for you yeah so you can show them the device yeah. and then probably would be great if i did a description of the device that works with an illustration and he's like oh yeah okay that's a good idea do that yeah <laughs> and, and then he goes well you know actually the best way to, to draw it would be on somebody's head so would you mind putting it on your head and that guy goes no of course yeah i well, know I'll put it's... It, it's so ridiculous it's so preposterous oh so he says, all right, I'll put it on my head, but hurry up and draw that picture. And, and the reason he, our narrator mentions, if I get the illustration just right, then maybe they'll put it in the paper. He's, oh yeah, the paper, that's a great idea. So he puts it on his head. He does the illustration, but it's not, they're not quite in the station yet. Yeah. So he's got to try out his next gambit. So he decides, I'm going to play on the guy's religious mania. I'm going to, I'm going to start chanting crazily. Yeah, because I spent some time in Mexico previously. Right. So I know about these, these Aztec myths and things. So I'm just going to. Exactly. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm going to say some stuff and see if it. If it distracts him. Which he does, and it does. The guy, it triggers something in the guy's mind. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, and he jumps up and he starts chanting too. He also Damn. wraps in a couple of Lovecraft gods, but gives them these Aztec-sounding names, right? Oh. It's like Quetzalcoatl and Pizzapilotli and all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And then he also says like Cthulhu-tl. Cthulhu-tl. The Aztec kind of pronunciation of the Lovecraft god. And, uh, and then it says, Now in all this responsive gibberish, there was one word which struck an odd chord in my memory. Odd, because it never occurs in any printed account of Mexican mythology, yet had been overheard by me more than once as an awestruck whisper amongst the peons of my firm's Lascala Mines. It seemed to be part of an exceedingly secret and ancient ritual, where there were characteristic whispered responses which I had caught now and then, and which were as unknown as itself to academic scholarship. This maniac must have spent considerable time with the hill peons and Indians, just as he had said, for surely such unrecorded lore could have come from no mere book learning, realizing the importance he must attach to this doubly esoteric jargon. I determined to strike at his most vulnerable spot and give him the gibberish responses the natives used. Yarule, yarule, I shouted. Kududurufutagen. All right, first of all, how does this auditor know oh, God. that the one word this guy spoke has never occurred in any printed account of Mexican mythology? Yeah, it's so preposterous. It doesn't make any sense. How does he know that? Because... What they don't tell you, <clears throat> Chad, is that he is an anthropologist on the side. Right. He's Everybody's got a side job in this. Yeah. Uh... yeah, exactly. So he's an amateur anthropologist, and he studied for years specifically Aztec mythology. Now, this is nowhere in the story, but I'm thinking it's not in any kind of subtext either. It's just stuff we have to make up to make this thing make sense. Uh, anyway, well, that last bit of gibberish really sets the crazy guy going. He goes he nuts. Bowing and bowing. going. Up. No, he goes into ep epileptic, like crazy seizures. And he starts, uh, right, right. he starts, uh, what does it say? Um, I could hear his foaming lips repeating the syllable kill, kill, kill in rapid swelling right. monotone. Of course, that's causing this battery device that the thing on his head is hooked up to to kind of flip off the seat while he's having these seizures. And then something I never saw coming happened. What? What, 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 what could possibly happen here? Then came the sudden cataclysm. The battery, yanked over the seat's edge by the maniac's last gesture of orgiastic frenzy, did indeed fall, but it did not seem to have wholly broken. Instead, as my eye caught the spectacle in one too fleeting an instant, the actual impact was borne by the rheostat, so that the switch was jerked over instantly to full current. And the marvelous thing is that there was a current. 
invention was no mere dream of insanity. Wow. Yeah. So the guy basically gets super electrocuted, and there's this terrible, stinky order of burning flesh, and then, of course, the narrator passes out. <laughs> you know, when the bad guy put the cage on his head, I never, I mean. You didn't see that coming? I never would have guessed. Oh, yeah, me neither. It was a total yeah. surprise. I never at any point thought he was going to get electrocuted. Holy. So, so terrible. So obvious. Uh, yeah. So when they get to Mexico City, the, the guards revive our narrator and they say, hey, we didn't find a body in here. I don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, there was never anybody in this train car with you. What? Yeah. And the narrator gets a wire that says Felden, the fugitive that he was going down to chase, has been found dead. Mm -hmm. The papers have been recovered. But our narrator goes to the mine anyway. He wants to get a full accounting before he goes back. Folks, where they found Felden, they, they'd found him up in the mountains because they, while they were searching for him, they'd heard this loud chanting. Mm -hmm. Followed it up. They found a cave where Felden was, but he'd been electrocuted and he had some odd device on his head. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, where there were all kinds of crazy symbols all over the place. The auditor goes up to look at the body and he finds some stuff on the body, right? Well, he finds his gun, first of all. Yeah, well, it's in a pot. He sees the bulge of the gun. Yeah, he sees the bulge, and he knows, but he doesn't want to look at it because that would mean that something insane has happened, like somehow. Right, and then people might, you know, wire your gun in his pocket. But he right. does find the papers, all the stuff that he, his letter of introduction, that's right. in the guy's. Like, oh, yeah, the letter that he wrote to his, supposedly was writing to his wife, and then the yeah. sketch that he did and all that nonsense. Right. But he doesn't look at it. He doesn't even read it. He just takes it home and burns it because he doesn't. Oh, of course. You know, he doesn't want to deal with the realization of, something happened that doesn't make any sense. As to what really happened that night, as I've said, I simply don't dare to speculate. That chap Felden was insane to start with, and on top of his insanity, he had piled a lot of prehistoric Aztec witch lore that nobody has any right to know. He was really an inventive genius, and that battery must have been the genuine stuff. I heard later how he had been brushed aside in former years by press, public, and potentates alike. Too much disappointment isn't good for men of a certain kind. When I tell my story, most people call me a plain liar. Others lay it to abnormal psychology, and heaven knows I was overwrought. While still others talk of astral projection of some sort, my zeal to catch Felden certainly sent my thoughts ahead toward him, and with all his Indian magic, he'd be about the first one to recognize and meet them. Was he in the railway carriage, or was I in the cave on the corpse-shaded haunted mountain? What would have happened to me had I not delayed him as I did? I'll confess I don't know, and I'm not sure that I want to know. I've never been to Mexico since, and as I said at the start, I don't enjoy hearing about electric executions. Wow. That is the stupidest thing I ever heard. That was the end of the story. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's sort of like uh, when you're at a party and some people are, are stoned or whatever, and they start. somebody tells you a story you think is going somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then you realize slowly, <laughs> yep. A, the story's never going to end, and uh -huh. B, you know, it's about nothing. Yeah. My favorite sentence here is, uh, my zeal to catch Felden certainly sent my thoughts ahead toward him, and he'd be the first one to recognize and meet them with his Indian magic. Like, that is the most stoner, ridiculous, yeah. lame, I don't know. It's preposterous. Yeah. But you know what doesn't make sense? If you, even if this was legitimate, mm -hmm. go back and read the, the first part of it, and the guy was sitting in... The train, like, and looking out the window and just sitting there yeah. and clutching his valise. Like, what was he doing? If he was mentally transporting his mind to the train, why, yeah, first of all? I don't know. And it wouldn't be his mind because he was physically there. You know, physical objects actually went with him. So he actually teleported in some way if he's taking physical things. And if <laughs> I guess 
It's just, it just doesn't make any sense. Okay, he wasn't really there. So this was a conversation I had between two people in two different places who maybe were both hallucinating that the other was there or something like that. But, but why, why did the guy want to test it on, I don't know. It a was, guy that's a ghost or an astral projection? But they're obviously not an astral projection because they physically exchanged items. So that's, that's right. out the window. Forget, forget that. Because yeah. if they physically exchange things, then somehow somebody teleported one way or the other. Why would he have teleported to this dude? And then for a good, I don't know, hour or two, just sit there and not interact with the guy until the guy pulls a gun on him. The, the investigator was thinking about him really hard. <laughs> and because of that, and he would, because he was delayed in the train. Train mm -hmm. delays were making him so anxious that he was, he was, you know, it says earlier he's pushing on his seat because he wanted the train to go faster. So he's really thinking hard and his thoughts are going whew, faster than him, his body. And they're meeting the guy who's practicing his Indian magic in the cage. And when his thoughts meet the guy with the Indian magic, it, it pulls the guy into his, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, that doesn't make I'm any trying sense. Trying so hard. It, I know you really. It's you're given a good try, but it still doesn't make any sense. If that guy was yeah. getting pulled mentally to this train, I, why would he just sit there and wait around until the guy pulls a gun on him? Because that's exactly what happens. Yeah, I don't know. It's all preposterous. It's just this is a terrible. Yeah, story. it's a bad story. And I, you know what? I really tried to keep my mind open to it because I hated the last one with this uh, collaborator so much. Yeah. I thought, well, you know, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be bad. But no, so far. And adds salt to injury, poor HPL, I, who I don't necessarily blame for this because he got paid $16 for this rewrite. Oh, okay. Okay. And sure. just take a guess how much Castro, the Castro sold oh, it for. Oh, no. You know that? He probably sold it for like a few hundred bucks, right? Well, $175. Ugh. Who bought that story for $175? That's Weird insane. Tales, man. Didn't this, go in, didn't this go in Weird Tales? Yeah. It was published in Weird Tales. Mm -hmm. But he was truly a ghost. His name wasn't on. I don't His think name wasn't on Lovecraft's name. With I hate him. jumping on people's work, you know, because somebody tried really hard and wrote a story. Oh, and, I know. You know, I they know. put themselves out there. I understand that, but it's easy to make fun of things. It's easy to make fun of things. However, this is terrible. <laughs> One thing I thought about uh, with the main character getting married, is, and we talked about this way back when we did the Houdini story, because didn't, when Lovecraft and Sonia got married, he had to work during. The whole thing, right? Because he was doing oh, the revision right. of the yeah, story uh -huh. for uh -huh. Harry Houdini, for Houdini. And, and Prison with the Pharaohs, or Under the Pyramids. Yeah, they had to do a rewrite of it, right? You know what else I read? That Lovecraft gained a lot of weight while he was married. Oh, I never read that. Yeah, he 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 went from 140 to 200 pounds. Oh, he's probably actually eating. Yeah, well, he was actually <laughs> eating. That's the thing. But I just, it's he's sort of like Elvis, you know. If we ever release the <laughs> postage stamps, they'll be like, what? Do we want Gaunt Lovecraft or the Fat Lovecraft? <laughs> But he was fat Lovecraft early in his career, and then he became Gaunt Lovecraft. Yeah. Well, he was Gaunt, then he gained some weight, then he went Gaunt again. Yeah. But yeah, he was eating while he was married. and uh, Not that 200 pounds is fat, but I mean, I just, on that guy, it must, must have looked quite different. Do you know how tall Lovecraft was? I don't, I don't actually know how tall he was. That's something I'm curious about, listeners, if you know Lovecraft's yeah, height. Yeah, I'm sure it's easily found information, but I don't have it either. I really, unfortunately, don't have much more to say. No, fortunately, I don't have anything more really yeah. to say about this story. There's not much background on it. If you want to know more about uh, DeCastro, I would say listen to our earlier show, The Last Test. And, mm -hmm. uh, I know that Lovecraft, he, he wrote to August Derleth that he was not enjoying doing this revision either. And he didn't have a very high opinion of DeCastro, so I, it's another reason I don't feel too bad bagging on these things because I don't. this wasn't coming out of Lovecraft's soul or anything. It was just a job. Yeah, it was totally just some... Get some money, some $16. That is, what a crime. <laughs> no, it's terrible. What a crime. I mean, this guy, DeCastro, 
obviously he was a, a bigger deal than Lovecraft at the time, and so he was able to get more money for his stories. But as far as I can tell, the guy was just terrible. He was a terrible writer. And he paid, oh, it's so not fair that he would $16 and sell it for 175 No, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I like slandering that guy. He's a jerk. <laughs> uh, so let's close it out. Uh, just another reminder of those readings of The Picture in the House and From Beyond are coming up soon this month. Soundtrack album is now on sale. Volume two of Music from the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And you get that for a donation of $10. If you give us a $15 donation, we'll send you both that and the first one. Uh, February uh -huh. 15th issue of Bizarre Magazine. Chris and I co-wrote an article in there that's going to be published uh, soon. Well, it's going to be on newsstands in just a few days and we'll put up a link on our site to where you can get it. Next week, we're doing The Mound with Zelia Bishop. But the author is Zelia Bishop. I want to thank uh, Stephen Brewster for doing our reading again this week. He did a great yes. job. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Sorry. We'll get you a good story at some point, Stephen. Promise. And uh, that's all I've got. That's it. I am Chris Lackey. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com <laughs> <laughs>